Okay, if you could turn to pages 46 and 47 in your handouts, you will have what you need for our session this morning. Thank you for joining me here for this breakout as we look at Ezekiel chapter 16. So, as many of you know, the, the work of Jesus Christ uh, secures two amazing realities in the life of a Christian. The first thing it does is it secures our forgiveness from the guilt of sin. But the second thing that it accomplishes is our freedom from the shame of sin. So think about it this way. Uh, forgiveness of our guilt has to do with our legal standing before God. And, and often it's talked about in terms of a courtroom scene where we're on trial for our crimes against a holy God and the pronouncement because of Christ is not guilty. But there's a second part of redemption that it's easy to overlook. And that's our freedom from our shame. And that has less to do with our legal standing before God and more to do with our inner cleansing. It, it, it's sort of that, that nagging feeling that we have that because of what we've done or what has been done to us, that we are unclean, we're unworthy, we're somehow just not right. And I don't know if this is true in your life. I, I've seen that it's incredibly easy for a Christian to embrace forgiveness from guilt, but still struggle with freedom from shame. Which is why so many Christians say, I know I am forgiven, I just don't feel forgiven. Or, if God has forgiven me, why do I still feel so bad? And our passage uh, this morning is aimed directly at that struggle. And that's Ezekiel chapter 16. This passage from the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel is one of the most gripping passages in all of the Bible about God's relationship with his people. So a, a tiny bit of context before I pray and, and, I, and I lean into it. It was written by the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, of course, at a time when God's people were in exile in Babylon. So they had been driven from their homes and their lands, and they have been enslaved in a foreign country all because of their rebellion against God. Despite years of pleading and warnings by prophet after prophet after prophet. And so they were in captivity as a shamed people. They were enslaved, they were mocked, they were publicly known as those who had been unfaithful to their God. And what happens in this chapter in Ezekiel is that God exposes their shame, but then he assures them of his affection, and then he finally, he's going to bring them home. Now, if you notice on page 46, the text, Ezekiel 16, is really written by the prophet as basically a three-act play. And that's reflected on your outline, although there is a little correction I want to make on your outline. I'll mention it in a moment. So in Act 1, which we're going to see God the passionate lover. And in Act 2, we're going to see God as the wounded lover. 
And then Act 3, which is actually on your outline as, as letter C. You see it there at the bottom? That should be Roman numeral 3, God the faithful lover. So God the passionate lover, God the wounded lover, and finally God the faithful lover. Let me pray for our time. God, so gracious that you have given us this time together this weekend. Thank you for your word. Thank you that, though written centuries ago, it still applies very poignantly and very directly to even what we struggle with today. So, Father, as we begin our, this Lord's Day together, I pray that we would not only sense uh, the depth of our sin, but be overwhelmed by the grace and mercy that you have for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us this time, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me read to you Act 1, which is Ezekiel 16, verses 3 to 14, under the title of God, the Passionate Lover. Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, As for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field. You were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And then I, I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and I shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus, you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God." Okay, we'll stop there for a couple minutes there. So, so notice this, the very first image that we're introduced to in this chapter is a bit shocking. It's a newborn baby girl who has been thrown out naked into a field to die of exposure. Now, sadly, that was not uncommon in the ancient world. And sadly, too, it's even true in some places in our world today. No offense, ladies, but in the ancient world, girls were not profitable to have. And so years ago, archaeologists actually found, found a part of a manuscript from a merchant 
who, who was away from his family while the wife was pregnant, and, and, and a portion of his note to her said this, remember, if it's a girl, throw it out. And you see that reflected there in verse five. Look at what it says, no, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion. You are cast out on the open field. You were abhorred on the day that you were born. But, but here's the drama of this passage. Starting in verse six, God himself comes into that field and has a very different reaction. Look at verse six. And when I passed by you, and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. So God not only commands her to live, but in the following verses, he begins to support her and to provide for her. And so at the very beginning of this passage, we see an amazing act of grace. So this man, imaging God, is not only rescuing an unwanted baby, but it's an unwanted baby girl. And in earthly terms, she's never gonna make a profit from his actions. She has no family, no dowry, nothing. And so just, just God taking the baby is really quite amazing. And in any other story or any Disney movie, okay, what would happen is this girl would be brought up on the man's estate somewhere and she would be reminded every day how lucky she was and therefore she better remember where she was rescued from and she should serve the master really, really well. But that's not what happens in this story. Look again at verse eight. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and I covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Oh, we're talking marriage. Like, this is amazing. Now, this is not unusual in the Old Testament prophets. And in fact, if you've ever read the prophet Hosea, he writes this, on that day declares the Lord, I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and justice and mercy and compassion. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness and then you will know that I am the Lord. Friends, this is astounding. Do you see what's happening here? Here is God, God is rescuing a person by grace, and then he's coming to them, and as he does, he's basically saying a couple of things. He says, I don't want you merely to be my inferior. I want you to be my spouse. I don't simply want your dutiful service. I want your intimate love, and I don't want you to be my maid. I want you to be my bride. What an amazing picture of God. Like I, I remember a little over 30 years ago proposing to Shannon and asking her to be my wife. And now Ezekiel has the audacity to say 
that the maker of heaven and earth is on his knees before us asking us to be his own. I tell you, there are a lot of images that the Bible uses to describe our relationship with God. So some passages describe it as a king with his subjects or a shepherd with his sheep or a father with his child. And all of those are good. They are right and they are true. But I want to tell you something. This image blows every one of them out of the water. Because God is saying, I want you as my spouse. As a husband relates to his wife, this is how I want to relate to you. In fact, look at the top of your outline. Just that one line from Isaiah 62. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now, notice what it says and what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, uh, as a husband rejoices over a wife, but Isaiah says this, as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride. In other words, God picks that point in the marriage relationships when the feelings are most intense and the passions are most inflamed. And he says, you have that in mind? That's how I think about you. (laughs) I tell you, no other religion even comes close to describing their God's relationship with his people. This is astounding. And friends, what does this mean? What does this say about the type of relationship that God wants with us? On your outline, three things. First, God is calling us into an exclusive relationship. Exclusive relationship. Listen, friends, you know this. Parents can have a lot of kids. You and I can have many friends, but you can only have one spouse. And God is saying through this passage and through this image that we must love him as the supreme love of our life. It is an exclusive relationship. Secondly, it's a a comprehensive relationship. God is calling us into a comprehensive relationship. You know, I, I, I was startled when I got married because I finally realized something, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, not the, uh, I'm not the brightest bulb in the chandelier. It took me a while. But I realized that when you get married, you're not single anymore. Huh. Write that down. There you go. What does that mean, though? You see, it means that when God calls you and I into relationship with him, it means that there, there's no area of our life that's off limits to him or, or hidden from him. There's no area of our life that doesn't involve our relationship with him. See, when we're single, we, we move in and out of relationships. There's part of our life that that's, it's ours, but not so when we're in relationship with God. And so, so that this, this ring, which I can no longer get off my finger, This ring tells me I'm always married to Shannon. 
No days off, no putting the ring in my pocket and pretending it didn't happen for a weekend. And the same is true in our relationship with God. So it's exclusive, it's comprehensive, but, but finally, it, it, God is calling us into a delightful relationship, delightful. Friends, one of the blessings of, of marriage is knowing that your spouse finds you delightful, even if nobody else does. So I, I, I've been in campus ministry for about 39 years now. And over the years, as we've gotten to know literally hundreds and hundreds of students, there have come moments when I look at a student, I go, who's going to marry that one? You know what I mean, right? You know what I mean. In fact, I am absolutely convinced many people <laughs> said that about this guy here, right? But you know what's amazing? Somebody married them. And Shannon married me. And not because they had to or they lost a bet, you know, like, oh, lost the lottery, here we go. But because, by the grace of God, they wanted to spend their life with that person. Listen, friends, when God sees you he utterly delights in you. He may be, at least in your mind, the only one who does. But he does. God just doesn't look at you and say, all right, they'll do. I needed a few more from that area of the world. Not at all. Friends, God, God is our, our passionate lover. He did it willingly. He did it voluntarily. He longs to be your lover. I wish we could stop there, but there's act two of Ezekiel 16, which is God, the wounded lover. And let me read that. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and, and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given to you and made for yourself images of men, and with them you played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and incense before them, and my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, you set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God, and you took your sons and your daughters whom you had born to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were, were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and wallowing in your blood. 
And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination. You offered yourself to any passerby, multiplying your whoring. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Uh, oh, but yet, you are not like a prostitute because, well, you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you, you were different. So therefore, O oh prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated, I will gather them against you from every side and I'll uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands. And they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. I'll strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. They shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore. You shall also give payment no more. So I will satisfy my wrath on you and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry. Wow, when's the last time you were called a whore that many times on a Sunday morning? And friends, what we see here in, in act two of this three-act drama is simply this. Every gift that this bride received, she used to attract other lovers. And... If you notice as we went through it, she did it in increasingly bold and provocative ways. In fact, just look at verse 16. You took some of your garments, made yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, never shall be. Look at 17. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I have given you, and you made for yourselves images of men, and with them played the whore. In other words, it wasn't enough wasn't enough to play the whore with live guys. You did it with statues. You did it with statues. And let me tell you, <laughs> this section is unbelievably graphic in the original language of Hebrew. 
It helps explain why historically Jewish men who had not yet reached the age of 30 were forbidden from reading this part of Ezekiel. And the bottom line here as Ezekiel traces this out is it's a picture of sexual addiction. And, and it's graphic, it is disturbing, it drives right to the very heart of sin. Because this passage gives us a picture of the real nature of sin. And I think it's, it's two things, you notice on your outline. First, it, sin is using God's gifts to attract other lovers. Sin's using God's gift to attract, gifts to attract other lovers. So hopefully you notice this as we went through it, uh, that the woman, the bride, took all the good things that God had showered her with, whether they be garments or oil or incense or jewels or children, even her beauty, and she used all of them to attract and flirt with other lovers. I don't know if you notice this, but the images in this passage go back and forth between adultery and idolatry. Why is that? Because in the Bible, they're the same thing. They're the same thing. You see, on a heart level, all of us want to be loved and cherished and welcomed and accepted. We all want others to want us and to need us. We all desperately want to know that we are special. And what happens in our sin is that we look to things, often good things in our life, to accomplish that for us. Some of us look to grades or, or friends or working out or career or, or sports or relationships or, or possessions. In other words, this is what we all do. We all take the good gifts that God has given us so that we can honor him and love him and serve him and we use them to make ourselves feel loved and cherished. And what this text is saying, what Ezekiel is saying is, on a heart level, whatever you are looking to or using to do that for yourself, you are in bed with. It's like that old movie from, from my generation, Fatal Attraction. Listen, we all know how unbelievably intense and powerful sexual passion and desire can be. Well, Ezekiel here exposes something that all of us want to keep hidden, which is this, that anything or anyone that you or I look to besides God to be the source of our meaning or joy and contentment those other things are practically our gods. No, no matter what songs we sing in worship or how many Bible verses we know or how many pages you filled out in your, in your packet. 
think about it this way. How many of us take our God-given intellect or our physical condition or our relational abilities or our drive and determination and honestly what we do is we make it all about us? And then our emotions rise or fall depending on our performance in that area or other people's reaction in that area. You might think, well, what's so bad about that? It's, it's your second point, which is this. Sin is not only breaking God's rules. It's breaking God's heart. Friends, this is huge. And, and, I, and I, it drives home the implication of the first act of this three-act play, which is that God is our passionate lover. You and I know that the depth to which someone can hurt us is directly related to the depth of our relationship with them, right? So some of you, I'm very sorry to say, I, I don't know you, I, I might not even know your name, and if you came up to me afterwards and go, that was the lousiest breakout I've ever been to in my life. I'd be like, oh, well, thank you for sharing. Okay, yeah, I appreciate that. Um, if, if one of our staff team, who I've known for years, come up, that would be hard to hear. I, but if Shannon came up and said, Mark, that was horrible. It was embarrassing to be in this room. Like, I, I'd have trouble getting over that. And see, in the first part of Ezekiel 16, God made it abundantly clear he's given his heart to us. Think about it this way. I want to use two examples that will press this home. I, I don't mean to be inappropriate, but just to go with what the passage is. So, ladies, imagine someday that you, you marry the guy of your dreams. And on your wedding day, he promised to love and to honor and protect you, to be with you, sickness and in health, till death do you part. A couple of years into marriage, you have a couple of kids in tow. And one day you were supposed to be out visiting your mom with all the kids. But one of the kids wasn't feeling well, so you decided to come home early. And you pull up to the house and you see your, your husband's car there. And there's another car. And you say to the kids, kids, stay in the van for a minute. I'll be right back. And you go inside, and you don't see anyone on the first floor. So you go upstairs to the bedrooms, and your bedroom door is closed. But you hear noise. And you open the door. And your husband is in bed with another woman. And as he sees you, he says, you're not supposed to be here. You said you'd be out all day. Sorry you had to see this, but you know, you put on a bunch of weight since the kids came along. And this woman, she just makes me feel better. We'll be done soon. Can you just shut the door on your way out? My ladies, how could you ever get over that? Switch it. Guys. You've married the woman of your dreams, the woman who vowed those same things to you. And, and you're working hard to provide for the family, and you're, you're away on a, on a business trip, but you know what? Business got done 
sooner than you thought. You took an earlier flight home. You get home a day early. Same scenario. You pull up. And not only is your wife's car in the, in the driveway, there's another car on the street outside the house. You go in. The kids are watching TV. Hey, kids, where's mom? She's upstairs. She told us don't go upstairs for a while. So you go upstairs. She's in bed with another guy. She looks at you and she says, it's, it's been good for a while, but you know what? You're busy, you put on some weight. I just needed a little bit of freshness in my life. We'll be done soon. Tell you what, can you take the kids out for a while? Shut the door on the way out. We'll be done soon. Like guys, that's the nightmare, right? That's what's happening in Ezekiel 16. That's what Ezekiel is saying. This is what we do to God. Every time we sin, we're just not breaking a rule like, oops, do not commit adultery, sorry. We're breaking his heart. And, and this earthly example is, is disturbing and it's, it's heart-wrenching, but it only begins to give a picture of the deep hurt that God experiences whenever whenever we sin. And so the picture emerges from Ezekiel of God as this deeply wounded lover. And listen, friends, until you understand that, you'll never know how deep your sin is and how great God's love toward you is. Let's face it. There are very few people I give my heart to. Same with you. My, my time, sure. My money, okay. But my heart? Especially if I know they're gonna break it. Like again and again and again and again. But God does the unthinkable. He gives his heart to us. Even though we break it time after time after time. And, and you know what's so ironic in, in this, this portion of Ezekiel 16? You know what's so ironic about sin? Did you notice what these other lovers eventually did to this woman? Look at verses 39 and 40. It says, I will give you into their hands. And they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They will strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. This is so helpful. Like you'll never know what you are in bed with, spiritually speaking, until it turns on you. And every other lover except God will eventually turn on you. You know what it means, right? So those of us who have given themselves to work, work is great until it no longer delivers the rush or it simply becomes work. Grades are great until you realize, I just got to study for the next test. Friends are great until you feel forgotten and forsaken because you will sin against your friends and your sin, friends will sin against you. Partying is great until the first hangover, until you 
finally realize they only like you because you're drunk. Sports are great until the injury. Serving the Lord is great until you don't get the bounce from it that you wanted. Listen, friends, we've all done it. We've all faced it. Our false gods betray us. They always fail to deliver on their promises. And instead of turning to the true lover of our souls, you know what we do? We just try again. Oh, I just need another boyfriend or a girlfriend. I just need other friends. I just need to switch schools or switch majors. Or I need a different team or a different season or different sport. So some of us go inward some of us go outward, but it's so hard to go upward. So is there, is there any hope for whores like us? I mean, Act 2 here ends on a very chilling note. Look at what it says right at the end of, of verse 41. I will make you stop playing the whore, and you shall give payment no more. Then look at what it says next. I will satisfy my wrath on you. <gasps> I don't know about you. I am so glad Ezekiel 16 didn't end in the middle of verse 42. We have one more act to go, which is God, the faithful lover. Let's read how Ezekiel winds this all up. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath and breaking the covenant. And yet, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. I will establish my covenant with you. You shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. There, there is this unbelievable tension that, that propels every part of the Old Testament. So on, on the one hand, you have statements such as, we read in verse 42 earlier, I will satisfy my wrath on you. Or even verse, verse 38, I will judge you as women who commit adultery and, and shed blood are judged. Or even here in verse, verse 59, I will deal with you as you have done. Those are terrifying passages. But then you got stuff like verse 60. Yet, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. So I, I don't know if you've ever struggled with it, but here it is. Which is it, God? <laughs> like, am I going to be destroyed in your anger, or am I going to be swept up in your arms of affection? Which is it? 
And, and, and the key to this passage and the beauty of the gospel that Ezekiel brings in is right there in verses 62 and 63. I will establish my covenant with you. you <coughs> excuse me. You shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. Here it is, ready? When I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Whoa, when I atone for you, for all that you have done, no more shame. Now you have to wonder, how is this possible? Well, let me explain. So remember how this whole passage, Ezekiel 16 began. It, it began with a wedding. And do you know that the very first sign that Jesus did in his public ministry in the Gospel of John was a wedding. No coincidences here. And notice, I have it there on the bottom of your sheet. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now let's be honest. Isn't that a bit of an odd reaction from Jesus? Mary has just said, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Bad day? Well, one of the things to, to understand in the Gospel of John is that whenever Jesus says, my hour, or it says his hour, it always means the hour of his death. Okay. Let me read his reaction again. So Mary said, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? It's not my time to die yet. Eh, it still doesn't help, does it? Well, let me explain. Listen, friends, Jesus was 30 years old when he began his public ministry. I, I didn't get married till I was 31. And, and in those years before my own marriage, every time I was at a wedding, I would think ahead to perhaps what my wedding celebration might look like. And here's Jesus He's just beginning his ministry. He's at a wedding celebration. And maybe he's thinking ahead to what his marriage to us might look like. But see, I didn't know what mine would be. Jesus knew. Jesus knew exactly what his marriage was going to be like to you and to me. He knew that in order to have his church, his bride, fall into his arms, that the wine at his wedding celebration would be his blood because there was a barrier of sin and the stain of shame that had to be dealt with. Jesus knew in order to raise the cup of joy at his wedding feast, he first had to drink the cup of God's wrath and anger at us for all of our adultery and all of our idolatry. See, friends, 
It's the cross of Jesus where everything begins to fall into place and make sense. You see, all of these fake lovers in our lives come and they hack us to pieces. Jesus was hacked to pieces for you. All these other lovers strip us and leave us naked and bare. Jesus was stripped naked and bare for you. You know all those pictures of him on the cross with a loincloth? He didn't have one. That's just for our sensibilities. The goal of the Romans in crucifying was utter humiliation and shame. He was spread eagle naked up there for us. Other lovers leave us ugly. But this lover, Jesus, gave up all of his beauty and gave it to us. And then took on for himself all of our shame and our ugliness. That's why Isaiah says in his prophecy, he had no beauty that we should be attracted to him. Over the years, I, I, I have done a lot of weddings. And one thing I have always noticed, every bride, every single bride, without exception, looks gorgeous on her wedding day. Which is why, guys, if you get married, ain't no one snapping pictures of you. They all looking at her as she comes down the aisle. They mostly want to see your expression. And over the years, two expressions I've seen. Guys either start crying because they can't believe how beautiful this woman is that they get to spend the rest of their life with. Or their jaw sort of dropped. <laughs> In a sense, that, that's the wonder of the gospel. That despite all of our whorings, we are now clothed in the robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Such that when God the Father looks at us, it's like that bridegroom at the head of the aisle. All he sees, all he sees is beauty. See, the gospel tells us then that we are worse than we could ever imagine. Isn't that really the point of that act two of Ezekiel 16? We're worse than we could ever imagine. But because of Christ, you are more loved than you could ever possibly believe. And because your beauty now has been secured by Jesus, nothing can possibly touch it. So, so how, can, how can you and I respond? I'd encourage you, consider your sin in a whole new light. It's not simply breaking God's rules. It's breaking his heart. Look at your, your idols in a whole new way. As fake lovers who desperately want your attention, but as soon as your back is turned, they will betray you. And then run to Jesus with renewed joy and eagerness. If you don't know Jesus, he's your only hope. He's the only one who can cleanse you from all 
of your sin and all of your shame. And if you do know Jesus, you have not only been forgiven of the guilt of your sin, but you have been freed from the shame of your sin. Though your sins were as scarlet, he has washed them white as snow. Rejoice in that. Live as if that's true. Let me pray. Thank you, Father, for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he saw us at our worst and still stood in our place. Our Father, we are so, so very sorry. That seems a cheap way even to say it, but we're so grieved over the many ways that we break your heart. Forgive us, Father, for running to so many things for meaning and joy and contentment and happiness when you, the true lover of our soul, stands waiting. Father, help us, even in our last session here at Fall Conference, to run to Christ, to repent of our sins, and to embrace the glory of the gospel. We pray in his name. Amen.